Hi. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything is fine. Hey, everybody. Everything's fine. Hey, everything's fine. Relax. Everything is just fine. We have Mark Henry Jr. joining us, and he will probably, most likely, very definitely, be joining us every Monday because it is a real bitch to get guests on the weekends that want to be on the Monday podcast. And I know Mark is always down to work. So Mark Henry, for the near future, will be our Monday's guest. Mark, Phillies okay. dropped two of the three to Pittsburgh, going on an offensive explosion. Carson Wentz gets a foot injury that we still don't know right now what the future holds for that. It looks like it is not a Liz Frank injury, which is good. And that would have been five to six months of uh, recovery if uh, that was surgery. He's going to rest. I don't know the last time rest worked over uh, getting surgery, but that's what it looks like it's going to be, according to Ian Rappaport today. What do you think? What are your thought processes on it? Were we just idiots for even thinking that we were ever going to get that first-round pick, and should we have just been happy with the second-round pick? So I, I think my, my thoughts about this are pretty simple. Uh, I, I feel like everyone is bending over backwards, uh, all worried about that Wentz isn't going to play 75%, like, like we were kind of discussing there. It's a win-win for the Eagles. Either way, it works out. Because if you're saying, oh, I'm going to root for Wentz all year to play 75%, if he's in there that much, the Colts were 10-6 and six with the corpse of Phillip Rivers last year. So uh, I think they would be in the playoffs, so they would be in the playoff conversation. You'd be getting a pick in the 20s if he plays over 75%. So then the other scenario, and, and also in that scenario, the, the, the national media is going to be clowning the Eagles. If Carson Wentz is leading the Colts to the playoffs, that's going to be a nightmare on Twitter and whatever that may be for Eagles fans. And I don't want to have to deal with that anyway. So I almost prefer the second scenario where, you know, we're proven right. The Eagles can be proven pretty right if this doesn't work out in Indianapolis. This is a make-or-break year for Carson Wentz in Indianapolis. If he, if, it, if he can't stay healthy, if he's the same quarterback he was last year in terms of production, Indy's going to move on next year. So this is his make-or-break year in terms of being a starter. If he can't stay healthy, I think that kind of proves that the Eagles were right to hop off of him even after they gave him that massive contract. So obviously, you know, their sins aren't fully forgiven. Uh, they weren't right all along. But once they traded him, it would honestly be better to get a pick in the 30s or the 40s while not having to deal with all the Wentz drama through the media as opposed to getting pick 25 and Carson Wentz has a phenomenal year and makes you regret trading him potentially. I also think Jalen Hurts now gets a fair shake, I feel like. And the Deshaun Watson rumors should quiet down for at least a little bit. I mean, say what you want about Deshaun Watson. You know, nothing's come out yet in terms of, like, a guilty verdict. But, like, can we just at least wait for the 20 allegations, the 20-plus allegations to maybe uh, work themselves out before there's a 90% chance that Deshaun Watson is coming to the Eagles and that uh, Derek Gunn's reporting that the Eagles are very high on, on Deshaun Watson? I mean, Jesus Christ, take all the, the shittiness of, of the allegations out of it. Yeah, everyone wants a 25-year-old all-pro quarterback. Let's let the, the chickens come to roost first before we, uh, before we go all in and waste three-round picks if we don't know the guy's going to be playing in a, in a longest yard type of situation over, over in Lincoln Financial Field. I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. If they did suck, Carson Wentz wasn't playing 75% of snaps this year. If they go 7-9 and nine 
and you've got week 17 and that would get him over the 75% threshold. I mean, they would, they'd be crazy to start Carson. Yeah. And that's what would happen. They would bench him. It would be a second round pick. And in that scenario, that kind of stinks. If he ends up going, if they do go eight and eight, nine and seven, barely miss the playoffs, seven and nine, whatever that may be. And they do bench him. Then you're getting a middling second round pick. But at that point, I still think you're not, too upset because it's you're still kind of proven right for getting off of him and ditching him and trying to move on for the future. Uh, so I, I really think that no matter I'm not I think where where it's going to come down for me, I'm not going to sit around and root for Carson Wentz all year. Like I, I, I it's going to be tough for me to root for him even to stay healthy or just to do anything. I, I'm not I'm not even a Carson Wentz fan or hater. I like to think that I was actually a centrist on Carson Wentz. I'd like to think, but. Uh, I'm kind of just, I'm, I'm done with it. Uh, I, I almost just don't even want to have to think about the Colts all year to root either way on it. I kind of just, whatever way it shakes out, it shakes out. Obviously the, the situation we just talked about is the worst case scenario. I, I really do think that most likely the Colts are going 10 and six or 11 and five. We get that low twenties, mid twenties pick, or if Wentz doesn't play for half the year, I, I think that this is probably a, like a five and 11, four and 12 team. And you get the 38th, 39th pick or something like that. Uh, so I, I don't really think that for me personally, it, it's that big of a deal. What's going on in Indianapolis. I'm going to kind of try to move on and keep that out of my brain instead of it's, uh, I, I was going to make an analogy uh, to, you know, I, I don't want to be checking my ex-girlfriend's Instagram account, you know, exactly. constantly to see how she, he's doing so I I feel like that's what Philly fans are doing when they're constantly talking about this Carson Wentz thing it it, it feels a little bit to me like you know not the jealous ex but like you're keeping tabs and I I get that we have reason to with the first round pick as opposed to the second round pick but I don't think that that difference is going to be all that huge and realistically we're not making all three of those first round picks anyway uh if you package the 25th pick as opposed to the 38th pick in a trade i don't think it's all that different you probably just have to throw an extra fifth round pick or something in so going back to the injury it seems like the best case scenario right now is that he's looking at like week three it was called i was reading a couple of things like the pro football doc he said it was like it's a it's a meta a semi-metanoid or something like that i don't know something by the big toe that like that is like popped basically And the Liz Frank injury would have been the worst of the worst because that was, you know, uh, Cam Newton had it back in 2019, only played two games. Matt Shaw back in 2011 played 10 games, missed the rest of the season with a Liz Frank injury. And these, this Dr. Robert Anderson guy, he's like the Dr. James Andrews of feet. And everybody goes to him. Jeter's gone to him. Devontae Adams has gone to him. Phil Rivers with the turf toe and stuff. Cam, Matt Shaw, like I said, Peyton Manning even went to him. Um, So that's where I kind of think it could be, a potential Liz Frank and Mike Garofalo and Mike Silver came out and said it wasn't, they don't think it is, but this is the same thing where it was like Cam Newton in 2019 was diagnosed with uh, with a, a mild Liz Frank did the rest option, never got better, got worse. Mm-hmm. I never like to call Carson Wentz injury prone, especially because the last injury we really had was the one where Jadavion Clowney, uh, just fell on top of his head after he was on the ground. One of the dirtiest hits I've ever seen in my life. But you go back to college, man, broken right wrist, broken back that came out of nowhere, uh, ACL, LCL, uh, fractured ribs in 2016. I uh, didn't finish out that season either. The man is injury prone. And I think I'm more, I'm, I know I'm more willing to admit that now that he's not here. And I don't think this gets better before it gets worse. Feet are just a weird, a weird injury, especially when you play a sport 
where you're on your feet at all times, getting chased around at all times, having to make throws, having to push off of the explosiveness, which Liz Frank or the meta semin I wish I had that name again, the metanoid, we'll just call it, doesn't allow you for that explosion. So I do think this gets worse before it gets better. Is there, is there a best case scenario? I mean, are you kind of like writing it down that like you don't expect Carson Wentz to, to make it to 75 reps this year, 70% reps? That's a good question. It's tough. Uh, you said week three is where they're projecting him. And I, yeah. I saw, I saw something similar. So working off of that, I mean, if he comes back in week three, are you confident that he stays healthy for 15 weeks after he got hurt on like the first day that he possibly could have uh, in practice? So, so I mean, yeah, that's definitely a concern. Um, I, who knows what's going to happen with this guy? And I, I'm, I'm along the same, I'm along the same path as you. I wouldn't have ever called him injury prone. This feels like an, a guy that is injury prone type injury, like a guy getting hurt in practice, get hurt in his foot. Uh, I haven't I haven't heard this deep of a dive into the the metas and the stuff in the foot since Ben Simmons. Uh, yeah, the metatarsals. And, and stuff, yeah, 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 the metatarsals. Yeah, he, I guess he I guess it worked out for him a little bit. I don't remember any feet stuff with him, but I mean, he did. He sat out the whole year, and you know, hopefully, our our big our seven foot two big man on a torn meniscus that he played through uh, instead of getting surgery, he he looks like he's resting. <sighs> yeah, resting so, over surgery, which will be interesting. Obviously, the media market in Indianapolis is a completely different media market than we have here. It is Eagles or bust. I don't, I guess it's probably basketball and number one and Colts number two in Indianapolis. The, the Indy 500 probably right there. Jesus. And <laughs> there are talks because right now you can't go into the season with Jacob Eason, Brett Hundley. They just, uh, they just signed today. Sam Ellinger is a rookie. Um, there are talks that Nick Foles could be brought in for the right price. Now, do you do that deal, in your opinion, knowing that everything you knew about in Philadelphia, it seems that Carson and Nick liked each other. I think they, I think the, the Philly media just kind of bring a rift through that and everything. Would you go out and get him, or is that a complete no-no? I am a full believer in allocating resources to the backup quarterback. Um, I, I think that it's something that it's amazing to see some of these, like Dallas, Dallas backup is Cooper rush after Dak just had a massive injury. Like our backups, uh, Joe Flacco. Right? Yeah, yeah, I know. I completely agree. I, I think it's, I, I think the Indy going into the season with Carson Wentz's backup being Jacob Eason is massively massively just underlooking an obvious thing that <laughs> it happened already. It was obviously going to happen. And the thing with Carson Wentz that, that really sticks out to me that I, I kind of didn't mention this when we were first talking about it. If he's, if we're saying he's coming back in week three and he already has a foot injury that eliminates one of his best traits, which is escapability. Like Carson Wentz, when he was right, one of his best traits is, Oh my God, how did he break that tackle? Oh my God. How did he get out of that and make that throw to Miles Sanders in the back of the end zone? Like, these plays were because he was able to escape the pocket, not because he's this fast burner or anything, but because he was good on his feet and he was able to escape tight situations. Is, is he going to be able to do that? And also you have to keep in mind that he has no deep ball. So we're talking about a quarterback who has one of the worst deep balls in football and he was losing one of his best traits in escapability potentially with an injury, even if he comes back. 
what is he really excellent at at that point? Pretty much everything else, but is that going to be enough to make up for those two massive holes in there? So, yeah, I think Indy should be getting a backup, not just for this injury, but to, if Carson Wentz flames out, I think you'll be able to tell by week eight or week nine. Uh, so, yeah, maybe not Nick Foles just because of the PR of it. I don't know who the other options are. The other name that came to my mind that I haven't seen this anywhere is Gardner Minshew, probably because I don't know if the Jags would trade him in division. I, I don't know if that matters or not. I have no idea. But Gardner Minshew is a better player than Nick Foles at this point, I'd say. So I think that's someone they should look at. No one really, no one else really, maybe Jordan Love, you know, if, if Green Bay really wants to make out with Aaron Rodgers in front of everyone and, and uh, show everyone that everything's going to be okay since they traded for Randall Cobb, I roll. Um, yeah. I, uh, maybe, that, maybe they can hit up the Green Bay for Jordan Love. But Gardner Minshew, Nick Foles, those are the two obvious names probably. This is this is great for your futures, uh, Jaguars winning the division outlook. Hell yeah, it is. So the Jags. Uh, I, I had the Jags finishing at nine and eight, and the Colts at ten and seven. The Jags barely missing the playoffs. You know, I flipped that. Ja- Colts are nine and eight. Jags ten and seven. We're going to the playoffs, Jacksonville. Let's move over to the the Sixers draft. They draft Jaden Springer on Thursday. What did this pick mean for the Sixers? So the consensus from the NBA writers was it was a great pick. Young guy. Plays defense, but it's another SEC guard who can't really create his own shot, who can't really create his own shot off the dribble, who can't shoot necessarily. He made 44%, but that was with 46 three-point attempts. So there's a little a little there that you, you, you'd like to see more and uh, didn't really shoot uh, within the perimeter that well. I'm not, everyone seems to be happy with it. I don't understand why we can't just draft a guard who has shown a semblance that they can create their own shot in college. But what did you think of the pick? I know you know way more than I do about Jaden Springer. I'll be completely honest with you. Five days before the draft, I have never even heard of Jaden Springer. And I wanted Jared Butler strictly because I remember him from uh, playing Baylor in the uh, NCAA tournament. So... I'm high on Jaden Springer. I had Jaden Springer uh, 18th on my big board. So not as high on, as some you'll hear out there, but he was third available uh, on my board behind Jared Butler and Io DeSumo, which a lot of draft nerds like me out there that would hear this would scoff at me having Jared Butler and Io DeSumo over Jaden Springer. But So I don't think you're crazy for wanting Jared Butler over him. I had him ranked over them. But I do think that Jaden Springer has phenomenal upside in a way that uh, Jared Butler and Io DeSumo and Miles McBride and other guy that I was looking at all don't necessarily have because of his athletic profile and because of what you've seen already at his age, at age 18 in the SEC. I think Jaden Springer uh, is getting undersold a little bit offensively. Um, I, I think that the three-point shot looks pure to me. I, I have no problems with the stroke. I, I think that he obviously shot it on such low volume. It's so disappointing to see that because I think if he just would have shot it about double I don't think we'd have these questions because I think he still would have shot it over 35, 36%. And would he have did shot say it that was his role in the, in the offense too. Yeah. I know that's for sure. It's this, that's the Rick Barnes idiotic offense that they run at Tennessee. I can't stand Rick Barnes. I am not a fan of uh, Tennessee college basketball. They, they drive me crazy, but, and then it didn't help that Jaden Springer's combo card mate was Keon Johnson. Who's a non-shooter as well. He also went in the top 25 of this draft. Uh, he's a non-shooter though. So that really hurt that Jaden Springer and him weren't shooting the ball. Couldn't space the floor at all. So it really felt like they had to drive kind of. Um, and I, I, I think, you look, at the, you look at the jump shot, to me it looks pure from three. 
it doesn't look pure on the pull-up from two for some reason. That looks really hitched to me. It looks like there's a big-time hitch in the jumper. I don't know if, you know, the Sixers, the Sixers uh, coaching staff has not done a great job in the past helping people fix their jumpers. So I don't necessarily know if we should have faith in Jaden Springer improving that from the pull-up two. But something that has to give you hope in terms of shooting from three and in terms of shooting from the mid-range is his free-throw numbers. And he gets to the line at such a high volume. Uh, I believe it was six times per 40. Um, and he also shoots 81% at the line. Uh, and apparently these numbers from three and from free throw were even better at prep school. So, and I've watched the highlights and the jumper has looked the same for the last two years. So that kind of is a, a that, that's, that's a positive for me that it doesn't look like he's changing his jumper around. It looks pure to me. It looks like just a natural jumper. Uh, like I said, I like it from three, not so confident from the pull up two, but you have to be, I, I think you have to be optimistic about both of those because of his 81% from the line and his 44% even unlimited attempts from three. But like you said, defensively, it's, it's a sure thing. He's going to be able to come in right away and potentially play strictly because of his defense, even if he shows nothing that I'm talking about on offense. And I do think he also has a good drive and kick to the corner game, which is really all that they shot at Tennessee in terms of three pointers from the corner. So you can't really see him, creating for others much outside of that and outside of finding cutters occasionally. Uh, and they don't run a lot of pick and roll either. So it is a bit of a weird offense there, Tennessee, to try to kind of judge Springer's offense. So you do have to kind of go to prep school. I'm not someone who does that very often. I do like to kind of keep it uh, at college because I think that's when they're the most finished product that you'll see them. But Springer, because he's so young, because he's at age 18, and because he's shown so much defensively, you'll take those chances on what he can be offensively. Because on defense, he's an on-ball machine. He is going to tire anyone he covers out. He's 6'4 with a 6'7 wingspan, so he can cover ones and twos pretty easily, in my opinion. Um, so I, a lot of people are saying they don't think he can play right away, and then a lot of people are saying, sure thing, he can play 25 minutes right away. Because I, I do think that there's some people – uh, like casual Sixer fan Twitter, I would say, is being a little ridiculous about the pick in terms of there's no chance he's going to play right away. And then I think draft nerd Twitter, which I, which I consider myself a part of for sure, is being a little ridiculous when they're saying this is a top five prospect in the draft that went at 28. So I, I think both of those are on the extreme. I'm closer to the draft nerds than I am the casual I was gonna say, fans. What do you align yourself with, casual Sixers I, Twitter or draft nerd Twitter? I, I'm closer to the draft nerds here, but I – I definitely – I think that the pick is kind of trying to split the difference between getting a guy who you think can contribute right away and getting a guy who you think can really change the outlook of this team in two or three years. And also, just something I'll throw out there, I don't necessarily believe this, but if there was a big trade coming where we had to use a bunch of assets and we had to throw in someone that we thought other teams would value, especially rebuilding teams, an 18-year-old point guard – who everyone on Twitter is saying we stole and we got the steal of the draft. I, I think that that makes sense to pick in terms of if you have the hopes of a huge trade and maybe trying to include him in the deal for a rebuilding team. Everyone's calling him a three and D guy. So, so Daryl's just got to market him as a three and D guy. We get Robert Covington. Hey, you can have our three and D guy, Jaden Springer. doesn't matter. Maybe he'll one day become a three and D guy, but if you market that, that's the biggest buzzword right now in basketball. If you can do, if you could shoot threes and play D, if you're six, four, uh, black guy, and you shoot threes and play D, you're the most lucrative option in the NBA right now. Or a white guy, Franz Wagner, who can't really shoot the three. Uh, he went eighth to Sacramento. You get labeled as three and D guy too? Yeah, yeah. You get it. You get it if you can, if you have ever shot a three and you have ever played D 
and people decide that you are good, yes. you get that label. Like I, I'm not someone who complains about draft labels. My dad does this all the time and he makes fun of me for it because of, of how I talk about the draft. So he makes fun of the three and D thing all the time. And especially with Covington, he's a three and D guy, Robert Covington right there. Yeah. There are guys where the tag makes sense, but people just abuse it. Uh, and uh, it's I, like I genius. Like I, I, today, I don't know if you saw Fred Durst is back from Limp Bizkit and <laughs> yeah. Lollapalooza. And I was just reading because he's got a new look and everything. He's on the stage with Lollapalooza. And people are being like, man, Limp Bizkit, what a, what a generational band. Fred Durst was a genius. It's like, if Fred Durst was a genius, he would have been able to kind of change up as, you know, music was changing a little bit. Not just have, you know, uh, Purple Starfish or Chocolate Starfish or whatever the hell that chocolate was. Starfish. Yeah, Chocolate Starfish. And then go away forever. Like, his, like, that's his claim to fame. He was big in, like, 98. Like, he would have been able to figure it out if he was such a genius. He did the uh, the Undertaker entrance at WrestleMania 17. So uh, as a there you go as a as a as a of someone who's a bit younger, I missed the the prime Limp Biscuit years. But as someone who addictively watches late 90s, early 2000s WWF, I I think I've got enough of it. I, I think I I think I know the Limp Biscuit vibe. Yeah, like the people throw around the genius tag like all the time. It's it's usually after someone like goes away for like 20 years and then they just resurface at a music festival what like tupac's uh yeah like tupac's holograms like genius tupac guy was a genius (laughs) yeah um did you see his press conference where he said off rip oh you'll have jaden springer i wasn't on him until he said off rip i've been saying off rip like all weekend hey we're just riffing we're just riffing baby when he when he was like off rip i i'm like i can provide this for the for the sixers right away like physicality mentality i was like i I don't care if he can't shoot or not i don't care if, if i didn't know about him a week before just because he said something really cool just in the press conference, I'm all about him. And I've been saying off rip, like we were deciding on where to go last night. Like it was like, it was like Italian or Mexican. I was like off rip. I kind of want Italian right now. <laughs> for, me, like, it's, for me, wearing number 11, he's trying to find the way to my heart as a Jimmy Rollins stand for life. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's a big time. He just, he vaulted over, I would assume, and Jared Butler on my big board when he picked number 11. Yeah. I mean, you come out with a cool lingo like that. You're, you can hoop. Um, sneaky. Great draft by a team who has not typically had great drafts in their in their uh, in their past. The Knicks. What do you think about? What do you think about the Knicks? The Knicks start with nineteen and twenty one. They move back twice. They move both picks back, I believe, and they still end up getting Quentin Grimes and Miles McBride, two guys I had in my top twenty. Um, two guys I had right behind Jaden Springer. I think the two guys I had right behind him. Uh, so I, I absolutely, I, I actually, I lie. I think I had Quentin Grimes one spot above him, but I love both of these guys and they are both Tom Thibodeau guys. Like they are three and D guards to the max. Like uh, Tom, Tom might not like them because they make a little, little bit too many threes, but the defense aspect that they bring and the toughness they bring, they're the perfect guards to have out there with, with Tibbs yelling ice. Uh, I think it's the perfect fit in New York. And I cannot believe that we are at a point where I'm sitting here with one of my favorite drafts being the New York Knicks. After years and years and years of looking at dumb draft picks, they or not having them. They come out with two amazing players, one and also picked up future assets to do so. And then the other team that really killed it's the Golden State Warriors, which is not a shock to anybody. But I really like that Golden State had the seventh and 14th pick. And everyone was like, they're going to trade it. They're going to package it for a vet. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And instead, they're like, no, we're just going to draft it. And they draft Kuminga, who falls into their lap at seven. 
Now, is Kuminga going to help them win a championship this year? Probably not. He's probably not a guy who you're counting on to come in and provide like value right away from that seventh pick. But he, it was kind of a no-brainer at seven. His upside was definitely the highest at that point. And the only reason I wasn't in love with the pick was because Moses Moody was still on the board. And I thought after more and more thought about Moses Moody, I thought he fit perfectly in the Golden State. My problem was with him was that, you know, he kind of gets a bit too passive. That he had a bad tournament because of that. In Golden State, that's not going to be a problem with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. Just take your number and get ready for when you're up, Moses. Uh, I think it's a perfect fit. And then they get him at 14, seven picks later. And uh, those that was the guy that I, I was like, they have to take Kuminga or Moody here. And then they get the other guy seven picks later. Uh, that's just great. You know, most GMs, if they actually felt that way, where they were just, they said they were deciding between those two guys at seven, too. So I was spot on there. So if you're a GM and that happens, usually like Elton Brand would be like, oh, I'll trade everything to get up to the ninth pick so I can have both. And then I'll give up all my other assets. Golden State was like, nah, we'll play it out. Well, if someone picks him, maybe we'll trade up for him, but. We're going to let it play out, see if he falls to 14, and then he does, and you get him at a cheaper value too. Uh, I love what Golden State and New York did in this draft. Your boy Jalen Johnson, you were very high on him. When we asked about who the Aaron Rodgers guy was going to be in the green room, who's going to be sitting around a little longer, I think you said Moses Moody, and he went to 14. Jalen Johnson, where'd he go, 24, 20? 20. He went 20, 20 to Atlanta. and Not even a lottery fit. pick, so that means a Duke guy, not a lottery pick, he'll have a great career now. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't feel better about the fit either. I think he'll step it right in to a team that needs defense. And that's not what a lot of people think of when they think of Jalen Johnson. They see the playmaking. They see the glimpses of, you know, shot creation. But to me, the number one thing I see is the versatility on defense. And I, I think he's a guy who can defend three, four, threes, fours, and fives. Obviously, he's not going to be out there against Joel Embiid. But, you know, against your stretch fives, against your average run-of-the-mill fives, I think he can easily stretch and play that as well. I, I think he's a guy who can guard three positions. I think he's a guy who I believe in the three-point shot. And I think he's a guy who can play make all three of which are things that Atlanta needs to get to the next level. And sorry, Cam Reddish, but your spot just got taken from another Duke guy, and he's just way better than you at everything, even though you just had a moment, as Bill Simmons would say. Your boy Giddy, Josh Giddy. <laughs> Not only did we think he was going 10, he actually went six. So how long until Josh Giddy's back in Australia? First or <laughs> second contract? <sighs> the- I don't know, man. This is – How many – sorry, how many casual fans watching the draft that night knew who Josh Giddy was, you think? Uh, I didn't I'm know who sure Josh Giddy like, was. I, I did not know who this Josh Giddy guy was climbing up the board until we talked on – when did we talk? Wednesday, Tuesday? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did not know who Josh Giddy was. And I didn't yeah. – like, he's just this, this Australian wonderkin who was basically Australian Rubio, Australian Dante Exum, like – and he came out of nowhere. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, taking a guy who can't shoot or defend at six and has no hope of really getting there, uh, or taking a non-athlete at six who can't shoot or defend, I should say even, that's certainly something. Sam Presti uh, is a guy that I've defended for a long time, a guy that um, I, I think it's a lot of, I think it's a lot of flack sometimes, but he did make the worst trade in the history of my following <laughs> of the NBA in terms of trading James Harden. So, uh, I hey, don't think go over that luxury tax, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, had to keep Ibaka and Kendrick Perkins around, yeah. uh, by the way, that was the moment of the last decade in the draft. I just, uh, that Kendrick Perkins moment where he couldn't say Moses 
Moody is all time. Uh, and didn't someone like save him? Didn't one of the announcers yep. like save him? <laughs> they cut it. Moses Moody. His name is Moses Moody. Like uh, somebody oh cut Perk's God. mic. My God, he's having a stroke. Oh my God. But yeah, you had to keep Perk around instead of keeping James Harden around. But I, uh, I don't think Sam Presti's infallible. I, I know that a lot of people have gotten to the point where Sam Presti makes a pick or Sam Presti makes a decision. It's like, oh, what a genius. Mm-hmm. And I actually, and then I've also heard the other side where it's like, oh, he needs to stop creating. He needs to stop building assets. His asset accumulation is getting out of hand. When is it, when is it going to be too long? And, you know, me, I'm down to tank for five years if it mm-hmm. turns out right. So I have no problem with him tanking. I have no problems with him making picks for the future. I just don't see the vision on Josh Giddy helping you in the future. Uh, I think you should have went, if you're going, you know, screw this year, screw the next couple of years, they should have said, let's go with Kuminga and see if we can turn him into, you know, the Paul George, Tracy McGrady type that some see. I'm not necessarily one of those who see that, but there are some out there who absolutely love Kuminga. I, I think he's more of like a, I don't know, like a Luol Deng type. Like I, I, I think that's what Kuminga is, but Obviously, there are some out there who think he can be an all-star, that think he can be an all-NBA guy. I don't know if there's anyone who thinks that about Giddy. I know people are arguing with me about Giddy, calling me an idiot for not ranking him, whatever that may be. I don't know if any of those people are going to try to tell me he's going to be an all-star because this guy's not going to average 15 points per game ever, in my opinion. Does this mean SGA is on the trading block? Uh, that's one of the craziest rumors of all time to me. Like I I can't understand why a team would want to trade SGA. I hope it is Uh, SGA would be, I would rather have SGA as a Ben Simmons target for the Sixers than anyone besides Damian Lillard. Like I'd rather SGA than Beal. I'd rather him than even Levine, who I love. I'd rather him than McCollum, FVV, whoever you want to say, I I would rather uh, Shay. I I absolutely love him. I don't know why OKC would want to give up on him. They're saying that he might not fit their timetable, that's I don't think probably they, why. Yeah, that's probably the only meaningful he's, answer. Honestly, he's like twenty-one. He's so young. Like I, I don't understand how you could say that at this point. Like uh, maybe they, and I know that they wanted to trade him for one. They wanted Kay Cunningham. I get that. You know, I understand trying to make a play to get up that high. But if the rumors are true that they were trying to move up to number two or number three and using SGA, and those teams turned it down, that's crazy that those teams turned it down. Number one, and then it's crazy that OKC was offering that. So maybe he is available, but I don't think Giddy is going to play this year or at play at least in terms of starting. Uh, so maybe that's something they decide next offseason. Uh, who knows with OKC, man? I, I really thought they were going to take James Booknight. It seemed like everything was trending towards them taking Booknight, which I would have kind of shrugged my shoulders at. I would have been like, all right, like I'm, I'm not the biggest on Booknight, but I had him ninth overall, so I see the vision. But Josh Giddy, I, 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 can't, I can't believe that he went six. Uh, I can't remember a pick making that little sense to me in terms of being a top 10 pick in a long, long time. Since it Josh felt like Jackson. they were trying to be. It, it felt like they were trying to tell us he was like the next Rubio. Remember when Rubio burst onto the scene? It was like, yeah, he could score a little bit. His shooting numbers aren't that great, but man, can he pass? And I understand passing is important in the NBA. You want to set up your stars and whatnot. But like, first you got to accumulate stars, and second, when you're taking a, a sixth overall pick, I want that guy to be able to score, to be able to shoot, to also then be able to pass. Like, Jason Kidd. One of the best point guards in the last 20, 30 years. Like, that guy could do it everything. And I just don't, I don't understand why these GMs, they fall in love with guys who can pass. It's like me just watching, like, highlights on YouTube and be like, damn, this guy looks amazing. It just makes zero sense to me that, yes, though passing is, is important in the NBA, you're going to take your sixth overall pick because that guy can see lanes that other people might not be able to when you're yeah. in a rebuilding it. 
ever anyway? I think passing is important. I'm not going to say it's not. And I, I think, like, with Cade Cunningham, like, that's when passing is important. Like, when you see a guy that has all those traits and then it's like, oh, my God, wow, yeah. he can find the open guy, then it's like, wow, that's what makes yeah, you the next they're not level gonna player. Josh Giddy. Like, exactly. Josh Giddy's not going to beat his man off the dribble, get to the hoop. They're going to collapse. Like, no. It's like, okay, prove it to me that you can finish at the hoop first before, before I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collapse on you. And, so. and it goes to it – goes, it's just another example. Sharif Cooper, a guy who ended up going in the 50s, a guy who I didn't rank in my top 30 and got a lot of flack for that as well. And I won't he, brag. I, no, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And I wish that I would have pumped that one instead of Josh Giddy out, out there, uh, even though I knew Giddy was going high even when I was talking crap about it. I was kind of preemptively getting out in front of it. Um, but Sharif Cooper is kind of the same thing. He averaged like eight assists a game. He has next-level vision. I don't believe that he can do anything else on the basketball floor. And you mentioned Rubio. Rubio is like an all world defender. So that's like even another thing that Giddy's not going to ever be. I don't, I can't necessarily remember if we knew Rubio was going to be an excellent defender coming into the draft. I but don't remember it being like that. I remember it was yeah. like, it was passing and his, his vision. I remember vision was the big buzzword sure. with him. I, but he, he turned himself into a great defender. And I don't think that there was people when he was drafted that were like, oh, there's no way you can hope he's going to be a defender ever. Like, like there is with Giddy. Like, I, I just don't see how he athletically is going to be able to guard guards in terms of quickness or mm -hmm. forwards in terms of like range. I, I just don't see it in either way with him. Uh, it, good luck to OKC for trying to develop some, I mean, Toronto, uh, like I don't like Scotty Barnes. Like I had Scotty Barnes 15th. Like I'm really low on Scotty Barnes compared to consensus, but I squint, I could take these glasses off and I can see why Toronto can look at him and be like, Oh, we can teach him how to shoot. And it'll be amazing. I get that. Josh Giddy, there's no way you can convince yourself you're going to teach this guy how to shoot, in my opinion. Why does Sam Presti get a lot more love for doing the same exact thing um, that Sam Hinkie did and it being okay? Is it because he's just like this, like, wonderkin who drafted Durant, Westbrook, and Harden, and so he's just going to be always yeah. looked at like that? Okay. Yeah, he's also like a nice guy. Like, uh, like from all intents, like the media loves him. Like he, I think he gives scoops. I think he is always leaking to the media. All these media guys like Priscilla, who I love, uh, Chad Ford, you know, Woj, all those guys out there all talk so glowingly on their podcast. Not maybe not on like ESPN sports center or on the draft when they're like, like Woj is in a big spot. He's not going to pump up, uh, you know, Sam Presti. But if you listen between the lines, all those newsmakers and those guys who go to the GMs all love Presti and they won't criticize him. Uh, so I, I think that he has built himself a nice media blanket a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because Sam Hinkie wouldn't talk to anybody. So Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird, though, because he grew up under Daryl, and Daryl seems to be very good like the Presti model where he's mm -hmm. very good with the media. He's very good on Twitter with the fans. Like – he is a guy who will do uh, the MIT Sports Sloan Conference. He'll go on Bill Simmons' podcast. Like, that's – Daryl's kind of the same way, where I feel like if Daryl and the Sixers had to do this going down the line, if, like, we have to blow it up and this doesn't work, I could see Daryl not catching flack for the same way Sam Presti is. Oh, Daryl's the best of both worlds. I, I wouldn't trade Daryl for – I'm not saying he's the best GM in basketball, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't trade Daryl in the situation we're in for any other GM in basketball. He's just the perfect guy, especially the connection for process guys like me to Sam Hinkie and the fact that we brought in Sam Hinkie's dad, basically, yeah. to come in and clean up the mess that we made after Sam Hinkie left. Uh, it is just perfect. Uh, I, I think there's so many – 
there's so many reasons to trust Daryl into how to figure out this Ben situation and how to figure out everything. And I mean, you look at his pick last year with Maxi, who fell into his lap. You could say that Springer is going to be the same thing. Maybe uh, I, I think, I think that there's no reason to not trust Dale right now. I've already seen some people complaining, you know, because we didn't get the Ben Simmons trade done. Uh, people are like, oh, land the plane, Daryl, whatever. I think he's going about this perfectly. You think longer might not be the right word, but the longer this holds off the Ben Simmons trade, do you think it's positive for the Sixers or negative for the Sixers? I don't. I almost want to try to quote the Sixers Reddit thing, but it's way too long. Uh, basically, the explanation of it is that Daryl is a weed dealer and that okay. he, he's demanding $20 for a gram from every, everyone who will come ask him about it. And those guys are like, oh, come on, man. It's worth $10. It's worth $15. He knows after free agency, he knows after all the trades go down, after all the puzzle pieces fall, you know, a couple of those guys, a couple of those GMs uh, in, in this analogy are going to be hung over in the morning and they're going to need that weed. So they're going to go to Daryl Morey once that happens. So I truly still think that this is going to be fixed before game one. Um, I, I still just can't see, you know, media day, game one, all these things coming and we're having to deal with the Ben Simmons situation. And then, you know, even for the rest of this offseason, you know, you're trying to put together a, a roster, you know, get mid-level guys, get minimum guys it's going to be hard to sell them on what this team is because we don't even know what it is right now. So that's, it, that's one interesting thing. Um, I'm not looking at it as a negative yet for sure. Um, I I think he's playing it slow playing it. If we get closer to game one, maybe I'll start to get a little antsy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I like where we're at right now. And I thought that that Sixers Reddit, uh, you know, I thought that that analogy kind of summed up what people, a lot of people out there don't seem to get at all. I, I think that there's no downside to setting the market high. That he can always come down and he can always, you know, say that those reports were bullshit. Like oh, he, yeah. he can do whatever he wants. So well, why he, not set it as high as possible? He, even when like there was rumors going around that Ben Simmons was picking out houses in Houston for the James Harden trade. And then it obviously didn't go through. And Daryl came out and said, we're happy where we're at right now. We're not trading Ben. But I don't think Ben Simmons can be on this team game one. Did you see his uh, story the other day? Not the one with the pool, but the one with after the pool where he was like, all right, guys, let's go over to the pool now. And he had like the crying em- emoji in the story and whatnot. He read every single tweet, every single DM, every single comment underneath those tweets from that pool incident, which is, it's stupid. I mean, it's like this guy, the guy can't hang out in his fucking pool and, and, and shoot the shit with friends and, and whatnot in the off season. And we're going to get all over him about that. But like, he's, he's ready to be gone. Uh, Clutch Sports is ready for him to be gone. Daryl and the Sixers are ready for him to be gone. The fans obviously are ready for him to be gone. It'll be very awkward on day one with Howard Eskin. Say what you want about him. The guy's not afraid to ask tough questions. He will ask Ben a tough question about this whole situation and whatnot. And it'll get awkward. It'll be awkward. Yeah. No, if you bring them back, it's awkward with everyone. It's awkward with Doc. Mm -hmm. It's awkward with Joel. It's awkward with Ben. It's just an awkward situation. And it'd be awkward for even the new people they bring in because they're like, what the hell is going on here? Like, it's all, it's it's a nightmare situation in terms of 
if you bring him back. I still think that there's so like I was listening to a couple podcasts today talk about it, and like all three podcasts brought up like six different teams, and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot that we're linked to like 18 teams, and it made me like kind of run through all the options. It's like you know, some of these are on the table. Like if so, if all of these are out there and being talked about, some of these are on the table, and some of these have been offered. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a floor. Maybe that floor is you know a Brogdon Levert package or a Fred Van Vliet OG package or a CJ McCollum, Robert Covington package. Maybe those are the floor and maybe Daryl's like, all right, you know, I have one of those that I'm willing to accept worst comes to worst, but let me try to go get Lillard, Beal, Levine, SGA, Fox, you know, run through the list of whoever you want to add. I joked about this on Twitter, but he's the kid at the lunch table trading like Dunkaroos. And he's trying to trade, like, to get Dunkaroos for, like, baby carrots or, like, celery sticks or something like that. And you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then one, at one point, like, it's like you start that on Monday. By Friday, you're like, all right, come on. Carrots for Dunkaroos. And, like, you know what? You're just annoying me. You wore me down. Here's the Dunkaroos. I don't even want your carrots. Shut up. Because the trade packages are hilarious. The 714 Wiggins and I think there was another player for Ben. I legitimately laughed out loud when I saw that. And I was like, I love you, Daryl. Let me just say real quick, I'd say no to that. yeah i would too yeah you think ben simmons would burn down uh sixers twitter you watch 10 games of andrew wiggins shooting 20 footers bricking them off the back iron and not playing a lick of defense it sixers twitter would burn to the fucking ground andrew wiggins you have your guys kill me you would have your guys that are like you just don't understand what wiggins does what wiggins provides he would legitimately kill me he would yeah. kill me. If we were having to watch Andrew Wiggins on a night-to-night basis, would kill me. And James Wiseman, if they asked for him, I forget, if, who he, was too. forget if he was in there. Yeah, he, was. he looked like a nothing last year. And he was a guy I liked yeah. the upside on. He, I'm worried for sure. He did, he did have that lower body injury, though, that I mm-hmm. feel like did take him a little out of it. But Because he, he, he was getting some rookie of the year hype in the beginning. But I agree. Like By the end of the season. Was, um, all right. I want to get you out of here. Uh, let's talk Phillies. Let's talk deadline deals. Uh, Pittsburgh takes two or three. I'll be completely honest with you. I was in Boston all week, and I had, we do a cousin's trip every year um, with my grandparents and whatnot. So I had no – I went to a Fenway game, and they lost 13-1, to 1, so maybe it's just me. <laughs> um, they, take, they, t- they lose two out of three. We get Kyle Gibson. We get Ian Kennedy and uh, Hans Klaus for basically Spencer Howard. Um, what do you think of the deadline? Let's start, let's start there. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think it was fine. Um, I I'm not going to get too excited about Freddie Galvis, who you didn't mention, which is oh. probably fair mm-hmm. to not mention him. Uh, but yeah, you know, he's Ronald Torres, probably a little bit better, uh, maybe hopefully, uh, at least in the field. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a utility infielder. But then the big trade, like you said, is that Texas Rangers trade uh, where you get Kyle Gibson, you get Ian Kennedy, and you get Hans Kraus. Uh, um, I, Kyle Gibson. It seems like there was a bit of negativity or pessimism when we picked up Kyle Gibson. I was an all-star with Texas. He was mm-hmm. probably a top 25 starter for the first whatever amount of games this year. I think he had 19 starts, and only three of them were poor. Like, he had 16 starts that you'd absolutely take as a Phillies uh, team that has struggled to get production out of these fourth and fifth guys. He's probably on that Zach Eflin level, maybe even a little bit better. He's definitely been better this year. And then you see him today on Sunday uh, – 
he absolutely looked like every bit of what you're trading for. He went like over 120 pitches. He went deep into the game. Uh, he, he looked like, I mean, it was the Pirates, obviously, but mm-hmm. he looked like everything you were asking for. Uh, Ian Kennedy, I'm not as high on. Ian Kennedy's just an arm in the bullpen, just a dude. I think he was just thrown into it because he's probably, you know, Texas had no need for him at this point. But um, uh, And then Hans Kraus, I didn't I, – I, only know about him through playing MLB the show and having to trade for prospects when, you know, you're trying to trade an expensive guy at the end of his contract. I always end up with Hans Kraus. He always ends up as a a nice back end of the rotation guy in the show, but there was a video out there on, on Philly's Twitter. And this guy is a madman. I'm in love with Hans Kraus. This guy is switching up his angles, switching up his wind up, uh, doing Johnny Cueto, doing a little Johnny Cueto shimmy on the mound. Um, all the way in Te- on Hans Kraus. I don't even remember Spencer. Spencer who? Like, yeah. I don't even remember that guy's two, name anymore. Two bird that? tattoos on his neck. He's just a weirdo, and I love him. And his name's Hans Kraus. What, a, what is going on? Uh, He's the, the most American guy ever. The way he was talking about the fans, he's like, oh, when I do that shimmy shake, man, the fans start going nuts. I'm like, I, I just want to see him doing it in Citizens Bank Park with all the Citizens Bank Park fans doing the shimmy back at him in the crowd. I think that would be absolutely electric. Uh, I, I think I, you look at Hans Krause's like numbers. I'm not like a, I'm not, I have a couple buddies who I trust when I come to like minor league baseball stuff and they kind of keep way more on top of it than I do. Uh, but you look at the numbers and he looks better than Spencer Howard's most recent numbers to me. So uh, I'm ha- a lot of people are upset. It's like, you know, Spencer Howard was our number one prospect at one point. He was this top whatever prospect in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ruined his value and we didn't get enough for him, yada, yada, yada. And you know what? That's fair. I'm not defending the Phillies organization. They do a terrible job in almost every possible way that they could, especially when it comes to developing talent and getting value for talent. But I'm not going to sit around and bemoan the law. Now that we're here where we're at right now with what Spencer Howard is, I'm not going to sit around and bemoan the loss of a guy who can't play after he runs to first base. Like I I get it. He looked good first time through the lineup His his stats in that are elite. Maybe he is an excellent reliever at worst. We just traded an excellent reliever for an average reliever, a really good starter in my opinion. And then another lottery ticket at, at, uh, at starting pitcher as a prospect. So I love that trade personally. Uh, I don't know much about Gowdy. I know we took him pretty high, I think, um, who we traded to Texas. And then yeah. the other guy, I don't know There's anything guy, about. Yeah. A couple single A guys. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, it seems like a win to me, especially with how Gibson looked today and especially with that video of Hans Kraus. <laughs> you look at it, uh, a rotation of Wheeler, Nola, Eflin and Gibson, if Gibson gives you what he gives you this year, obviously he's an all-star, so you hope for that. Even if he doesn't give you an all-star, but can kind of, you know, plug in that third, maybe fourth starter, you know, God forbid Eflin goes down. I mean, that knee tendonitis thing, it's, it's a weird injury. It's not going, it's never going away for the rest of his career. So you never know about what's going on with Zach Eflin. But, you know, that's, that's four guys who I would be comfortable going into next season with, even with, you know, Kyle Gibson being 34 years old next year. Yeah. I didn't like how old he was and stuff. I don't like how old Ian Kennedy is either, but he's kind of a rental for this year and whatnot. It, it'll be interesting. What'd you think of Ranger Suarez being moved out of the bullpen by Joe? Uh, I think it's certainly an interesting decision uh, to have one of the worst bullpens in baseball and then to take one of your, the only, the only, yeah. the only, I was going to say one of your good relievers, the only good reliever that you have out of the bullpen. Certainly an interesting decision. 
you know, Joe Girardi has just been an immaculate manager while in the time he's been here. So how could you doubt any decision that guy makes? Um, no, I, I think he's an idiot. I, I think Joe Girardi's a terrible manager. I think the team's obviously run a lot deeper than Joe Girardi. So I'm not the boomer idiot Phillies fans that thought this team was a 95 win team with Gabe Kapler and that he was just, you know, co- putting his coconut oil all over the team and, and poisoning them. But I, I think that manager in baseball is not all that important, but Joe Girardi is testing that theory because he, he's doing, he's making a lot of decisions that it is tough to rationalize as a fan and, Ranger Suarez, you know, I'm not even saying he can't be a starter. I'm not saying that this can't be something you look at down the line or he'll suck as a starter. I'm not saying that. I think he's a really good pitcher. But he's your only good reliever. It's just a wild decision to make that. Uh, It's just wild to me. I I can't believe that that was something that was talked about. Everyone signed off on it. I think every Phillies talking head or writer that I've seen talk about it has had pretty much the same opinion, that it seems like a wild decision. So – I don't get it. it. Just, it's the organization just looks like, hey, who can we fuck up next? You know, the Scott Kingery thing was was a little wild. Some people do also say he went to go see a swing coach that kind of messed up his swing. But, you know, constantly going back down from AAA to up here. Mickey Moniak, he's having a great last couple of months in AAA. Can't even get on the starting roster here, but he's being brought up anyway and just sitting on the bench. Now it's like, hey, Ranger Suarez, oh, you know, he goes out, doesn't work out in the starting rotation. All right, let's move him back to the bullpen. Maybe he does good in the bullpen again comes closer, maybe gets rocked a little bit. And could you could you not see that, them just like messing with them and everything, and then they just ruined another prospect? No, it's a fantastic point. It is a fantastic point by you. Uh, it is 100% something that I could 100% see happening. Yeah. We've seen it time and time again. Alec uh, Boehm next year. Alec Boehm, yeah. are we talking about Alec Boehm next year being messed with too much probably? I'm talking about Alec Boehm right now. Yeah. Alec Boehm doesn't – and I was ta- – it's funny. I was complaining about Alec Boehm today. And Alec Boehm, to me, is a guy who I have no hopes in being a good defensive third baseman at any point. No. I, have, I have no hopes in him being a 20-plus home run, power-hitting, you know, plus-plus OPS guy at any point. He's not an excellent – he doesn't have an excellent walk rate in terms of, like, he's not seeing a ton of pitches like a Reese Hoskins or anything like that or even an Andrew McCutcheon or anything like that. So you're saying that this guy basically has to hit, like, 300. Like Alec Boom to be a productive player with the flaws that he has kind of has to hit 300. Now he hit what in his rookie year, like 330 something. Mm-hmm. Like I, I forget what it was. So if he's hitting 300, absolutely. What an asset. If he's not, he's batting in the two forties right now or somewhere like that. He's not a good baseball player. If he's doing that, like, cause he doesn't bring much to the table outside of hitting for average. So that's, that's already another thing, but yeah, Ranger, this is 100% something. This is like when I was complaining about Tua in the NFL last year. I think you, 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 you put him in there saying Ryan Fitzpatrick is making too many mistakes. He becomes a game manager. Then you put Ryan Fitzpatrick back out there because he's not taking enough chances. He comes back in. He's taking too many chances. It's the same thing as Ranger. You're, he was a starter. He sucked. Bullpen, amazing. Can we, can we translate it back to the starter? He's going to suck probably. And then we'll have to see if he can – go back to what he was able to do in the bullpen. They'll put him in the bullpen. He'll probably have like a five year. And it's like, what happened to Ranger? Yeah. It's like, Oh yeah, I think I know. Yeah. It's it, it, We've never been able to, it doesn't, I don't remember the last prospect that we were able to grow. I guess you say Nola. Yeah. Yeah. Nola, Nola would probably be the last prospect that actually like came out of the system and, and lived up to his hype. I mean, Hazley, we'll, we'll put him on the back burner. You know, he's got to figure some things out, but you're on, you're on warning Bryson Stott. Yeah. Um, Bryce Harper, 
I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Bryce Harper, a um, little background on it and everything. He's batting over 300 now. Um, and a lot of people recently, there's been a lot of uh, talk about if he didn't miss you know, those 20 games, uh, some with, you know, injuries, one with, you know, getting plunged in the, plucked into the face. Uh, he would be getting serious National League MVP consideration right now. So I know you, uh, you're very passionate about Bryce Harper, so I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I just think, you know, maybe I'm listening to too much radio. Maybe I'm listening to – maybe I'm too in plug to Philly's Twitter, and I, I had an argument with some friends today about it who were on the opposite side here. And and then I had an, I, I, another another group chat where they were like, this is what a, what a hilarious conversation to even bring up. But Bryce Harper, to anyone out there who is lamenting the signing of Bryce Harper, please tell me what you would have done three or four years ago, it's already four years, three years, whatever it is. Please tell me what you would have done instead of signing Bryce Harper, that we'd be in a better spot where we are right now. Because if it's, you know, we have to tank, we have to rebuild, we have to focus on prospects, we have to focus on all those things. None of those things are precluded by signing Bryce Harper. You look at teams like the Dodgers who consistently pay, who consistently pay talent and consistently have the best farm system in baseball and have guys that they can trade because they develop talent, because they spend so much money on scouting and international players and everything like that. Those are things you can do while you're competitive. And those are things that you can do while you're spending money. So the people out there that are like crying for John Middleton's checkbook about like Bryce Harper's first four years, he's 28 years old. Like we are not at a point yet where it's like, Oh, it was a failure. Let's throw our hands up and trade him for nothing just to get off the contract. We're not at that point. He's 28. In two years, if if a couple prospects turn out right, if we go out and overspend, which we probably have to do with what you've done in terms of hamstringing this organization with terrible development and drafting over the last decade, uh, you're going to have to spend. You brought in Dave Dombrowski for a reason. This guy has spent and spent and spent everywhere he's been. Now, he didn't do it yet. He didn't look at this team and say, oh, I'll push it in on Chris Bryant. I'll get go get Javi Baez. He didn't do that. But I still don't think Dave Dombrowski's here to tear this down and rebuild again. He's here to eventually get this team to spending in the top five payroll, in my opinion. And we're outside of that right now. And if Bryce Harper's 30 in two years and we still haven't spent around him and our farm system still sucks and we don't have the ability to trade and we don't have the ability to plug guys in, Maybe I'm willing to start listening to a conversation. But as of right now, Bryce Harper's career OPS in Washington was 900. His career OPS in Philadelphia is 913. He's been a better player in Philadelphia than Washington. Like, that's not, it's not that cut and dry. I get it. But it's just, that's the most important stat in baseball to me because it just encapsulates so many things. And there's so many other stats that I can point to, obviously, with Bryce Harper, especially at this year. And I just think people don't years. see the power numbers, and that's really what gets people. Like, I think a lot of people are casual fans. I would tell you right now, Mark, I am more of a casual baseball fan than, than anything. I, I see the advanced analytics. My brain just shuts off. I was never a math guy. I don't like math. I think there's a couple of factors that you're, you're always going to fight with people about if Bryce Harper lived up to his deal in the Phillies. We'll be fighting about this 20 years from now. And I think it's a couple of things where it's like, one, he's playing a child's game and he's getting paid $330 million to do it. So when you, when you go to your blue-collar job and you're doing more <laughs> for society, you think, like, I can't believe this man is getting $330 million to hit a baseball. Like, no one ever thinks they're being overpaid. They think everybody else is, in life is being overpaid. He's the CEO, the vice president, all of them. 
But then again, it's like for the casual people like me, like baseball stats, they're really hard to like quantify, like how good a player really is. When I go and I say, if I was talking to my mom, and I was like, hey, James Harden, he averages 27 points per game. That tells you that James Harden is a a great scorer. Or Tom Brady, he threw for 4,500 yards. It's easy to quantify that, like, I should be expecting 2,727 points per game from James Harden. I should be expecting around 4,500, 4,700 from Tom Brady every year in terms of yards and whatnot. And I think when people, you know, look at OPS and slugging and on-base percentage, there's so much math where it's like, first base times one times two double times three triple divided by at bases or divided by on bases or at bats or whatnot. And I'm just like, where the hell are we right now? And one thing, like when we grew up and we started getting to baseball and whatnot, there was that, that, that analytical revolution was never there. So like, if you, if you weren't batting 300 when we were growing up in like the nineties, early 2010s, you were having a down year unless you were hitting like 40 home runs and 120 RBIs. And that was also, you can also say, hey, you know, guys were roided out of their goddamn minds. Baseball was in a period where they needed to just people to hit the long ball and whatnot. You can talk about spin rates nowadays. You talk about muddying up the balls, not enough, the changing the balls and whatnot. But I just think it is so hard. And I think it's kind of a baseball problem, pace of play and whatnot. But also the stats are just so hard to talk to casual people about that in basketball and in the NFL, it's not. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about WRC plus or XFIP or FIP. Yeah. Like, I, and I'm not even saying I use those necessarily. Like, I, I take a look at everything. I, I like advanced stats. I'm not as crazy as some of my friends are that are like fantasy baseball nerds even beyond me. But I do think that we've gotten to a point where it's like, you know, everyone saw Moneyball. Like, I, I think we know walks are good, and somehow I still think Bryce Harper's getting looked at when he comes up with one out and a guy on second and third, and he takes a walk on five pitches. People are like, oh. You know, you got to put that into the second second deck, and it's like, it's yeah, baseball. I, like, you're not yeah. going to do that every – like, you're not – like, again, going back to NBA, you're not, you know, Giannis taking someone off the dribble and throwing a dunk down on somebody. Like – very rarely in baseball, you can change the momentum on a walk, on a single yeah, up yeah. the middle. But and and but, well, Brett Myers would beg to differ about changing it's momentum true. on a walk. That's true. He, <laughs> he won the Brewer Series but, in that in that alone. But I would say a a big thing with Bryce Harper for me, and a big thing with the whole baseball contract conversation for me is Bryce Harper a top fifteen player in baseball? Probably not. For me, like I'm someone who who plays fantasy baseball, I'm a pretty religious uh, like baseball follower in terms of across the league. He's not Tatis, like he's not Acuna, he's not Soto, he's not these guys. So it, it might sound funny to people out there for me to say, oh, saying Bryce Harper isn't worth 330 million is a joke. Baseball contracts don't mean anything. They don't. They mean John Middleton is a coward if he can't go over the luxury tax. Maybe that's the case. Sure. If you, if you have an owner who won't go over the luxury tax, then maybe it will. Maybe it does mean something. Uh, to me, if we're talking about Bryce Harper making $25 million a year uh, instead of $22 million a year, then it's kind of like, you know, what are we really talking about? Like, I, I just think a lot of baseball contract conversations are absurd as long as you're not tanking. And as, like, as long as you're not like those contracts are meant to be there because you're trying to win. So I, I just don't understand why people seem to 
they can't wrap their head around the fact that these guys are ultra talented and that's why they're paid the big bucks. And it's tough for me. I guess I'm just, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm too young. Maybe I'm, I've been, I've grown up in an era where I've seen everyone get $300 million contracts. People like our dad's ages or people are parents ages, whatever that may be. They grew up and it was like, you know, P Rose was making $500,000. People were like, Holy crap, what a salary. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that is, maybe that's something that plays into that too. Um, but you know, he's not one of the most exciting players in baseball. I heard you got you and Bob talking about this, um, uh, talking about Bryce. He's not, you know, must see material. I will give you that. He's not the guy he was when he first came up in terms of yeah, hitting and that's what 500 said. He foot was bombs. At one he point. was, yeah. He was the face was. of baseball. I mean, was he the face of baseball? You could argue. Yeah, he probably was. Cause I wouldn't argue that trout was the face of baseball when they signed him. It was close. Yeah. It, yeah. it was probably neck and neck there. Um, but I don't think that that has anything to do with Bryce or anything to do with the Phillies. I think his power numbers are a little bit down. Sure. But his OPS is up. His OBP is up. His walks are up. His like his K's are actually down. I think like, I, I just think that I just can't. And also beyond the stats, let's, you know, let's get yeah. down in the nitty gritty in the, in the dirt out there on the baseball diamond. Bryce Harper is like, you saw him today. He stretched a single into a double, like, like that had no right to be stretched into a double. And he's out there playing with his heart, like a hundred percent of the time he's out there giving it his all. Now he might come out of games in the fifth inning a little bit too often for me and for some, but when he's out there, he is giving it like 150% like the whole game it feels like and to me it feels like three guys on this team care sometimes like and whatever i want to say about some of their you know political ideologies and their uh, opinions on the vaccine jt bryce and reese are the only guys that seem to me like they show legitimate emotion like maybe like i'm not saying culture's a bad guy he doesn't care i'm not saying that everyone else doesn't care those guys when they strike out they seem upset when they get out or there's a bad call they seem upset. They seem like they're invested in a game in the way that if, if we were playing baseball at age 16 and there was a bad call in a game, we'd react. When it seems like sometimes when there's a bad call and they cut to the dugout and it's like DD's sitting there like this and no no one cares. No one's watching. No one's up on the no one's up on the top step. Maybe this is me being like a boomer here, but I, I just it, it's frustrating to see the rest of the team not care. And so many problems on this team. It's frustrating to see DD get paid two years, $28 million when he absolutely stinks in the field he's not hitting well and a guy like marcus Semyon in toronto who got one year 18 million is like lighting the world on fire and might be a gold glove type player so there's so many decisions that you can point out they paid david robertson however much money last year to not do anything they paid all these guys to do nothing they've made yeah. all these terrible decisions developed terribly there's so many things to point at they actually went into this year with vince velasquez as someone they were depending on Matt so that, Moore and Chase Anderson too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's so many, there's so many things to point at, and there's so many things to complain about. I just don't understand how people are watching the team. And they're like, "Man, this Bryce Harper guy's overpaid," and that's my takeaway. Like that, it's tough for me to feel like those people are watching the same game as I am. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm too much in a bubble. Maybe I am, but it seems like that stuff with Bryce Harper should translate in terms of him hustling and in terms of him, you know, busting his ass and stretching singles into doubles and stealing bags. And it seems like that should translate him wearing the Philly fanatic stuff. I know people make fun of it, whatever. Like seems like to me that should all translate to Philly fans. And I, I don't, it, I think it does to a lot it does. of people, but maybe I'm overreacting to a small amount of backlash about Bryce Harper, but that small amount of backlash 
upsets me, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> but it, it, it will come, especially with Ben Simmons being the, the Teflon right now. You know, once he's shipped out, we'll figure out what Jalen Hurts we have in him. We'll figure out Devontae Smith uh, is going to be what we hope he's going to be. We'll figure out if Jalen Rager is even going to be half as what we thought he was going to be because he might be the next one to get it and whatnot. <laughs> uh, Mark's giving the thumbs down if you're listening on the audio right now. Um, that, guy's, that guy's more likely to work at a car dealership than the Eagles in three years, but whatever. <laughs> I just think a lot of people with the 10 years that it's been since they've been in, in the playoffs and whatnot, I think they wish Bryce had more signature moments than just a grand slam against the Chicago Cubs. And me and Bob talked about this yeah. uh, two, three years ago on a team that won, you know, 70, 80 games and whatnot. The inside the park home run, it's probably the next signature moment that I think he's, he's really had. They just, they just, you know, when you sign guys for this much money, you, you expect, you know, MVP caliber play, you expect, you know, silver slugger awards. You expect, you know, power numbers, especially with the with the porch uh, and, and, and right field and whatnot. You know, you just expect a, a winner. And baseball is not an individual sport as much as you say basketball could be when you do pay these guys the mega millions and whatnot. And it does, it's a little bit of, you want more of Bryce having more signature moments. And it's a little bit of, hey, listen, I know we gave Bryce $330 million. I'm going to need John Milton to open the checkbook up a little bit more, especially when they say they're about to go over the luxury tax. I just, I think Dombrowski did good this trade deadline to bring it all full circle. I don't think he believed in this team. And I think that's why we got the moves we got. When we were being rumored to Chris Bryant, we were being rumored to Craig Kimball, to Buxton and whatnot. I don't blame him. Kimbrell, it started at Mick Abel. Yeah, that's where it ends. It ends at Mick <laughs> Abel. And Dombrowski and Bob Wankel is always good at saying this. Dombrowski came in and 2021 was always the year we were just going to look at everything through a, through a microscope, through a lens. And we we're going to see what we really had. And I think Dombrowski did good. And he saw what we had. And I've never really thought about kind of the guys that like you got your, your three or four guys that really – you know, give it their all and seem like they're engaged and whatnot. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were some guys on that team that were just like, one, didn't know what to do because it's just not from, they're not a, a, an organization of winning. And two, see some of the guys that are just like, yeah, you know, you know, I come, I put on my jersey, I come in, I play nine innings, I go home. So I think we can only kind of evaluate things from where we're at right now. Like, I think a lot of people are looking back over the last four years and they're like, man, this contract's a failure because he hasn't won. So I think the goal is obviously at some point to compete for a championship. Mm-hmm. And I personally think that there's absolutely a path to get there in two or three years with spending and with the prospects like I was talking about earlier. And there's people, like you mentioned earlier, we expect a winner. And we expect that when you make a big deal like Bryce Harper. And a lot of people have complained that that was the wrong thing to do. It sent the wrong message. Um, and it caused us to make win now moves that are going to hurt our future. Now, maybe they're, you know, JP Crawford for Gene Segura. Maybe you don't make that move if you're rebuilding. Maybe you don't trade for JT Romuto. I don't necessarily look at that as a negative yet, especially with Sixto going down. Um, yeah. But I, I don't, so whatever you want to say about those moves, maybe we lost them. Who knows? But if you're going to say that, you also have to say, if we're rebuilding, we probably don't go out and sign an absolute bargain of a deal on Zach Wheeler, who looks like a top five starting pitcher in baseball. Uh, so that's a positive. Like right now, wherever you want to say about the last four years, wherever we're at, we have, even if you want to say, let's rebuild or let's, if you want to say, They're not let's far. build on top of it. Yeah, exactly. Like you have Wheeler. Well, that's a better asset than we've had in years at that yeah. contract. You have Nola. 
who obviously he's struggling. He looks better right now as of late. Uh, the last couple starts have shown a lot but of promise. But if he's your number two, no one would, would, would not want Aaron Nolan as a number two. For sure, for sure. And even still, he's been like a top 50. Like, even in his worst scenario was this year, he's still been passable to most, in most situations just when you're not, when you're not expecting an ace. Um, so you look at all the things we have on this team that we didn't have four years ago or that are different four years ago. The, the pieces that weren't here four years ago are positive assets. If you trade Bryce Harper, I don't care what his contract is, you're still getting prospects. Maybe you eat a little bit of the money for like a, a few years or wherever that may be, you're still getting prospects. If you trade Zach Wheeler, you're getting the type of prospects that they were getting for Scherzer and that guys were getting for, uh, I forget who Toronto uh, got who they who Toronto traded for. It seems like they got fleeced. They gave up a ton for him, a pitcher. But uh, yeah, there's a, they, there are a ton of assets on this team to go either way on. If we want to rebuild, we have that ability to. And if we want to kind of, you know, add on some really good players that we have, whatever you think about a lot of the players on this team, we still have a lot of really good players. Reese Hoskins, his numbers are, don't look now, but pretty insane. Andrew McCutcheon's like top five in walks this year. Like we have pieces. Kutch is obviously expiring. Maybe you give him a one-year deal. Who knows what happens there? But it's going to be interesting to see what happens. This is it. I'm kind of past the point of competing this year at this point. Like I was all Mr. Win the division, you know, maybe that, maybe who knows we sweep the nationals, the Mets lose a couple games and my tune changes, but I uh, I'm kind of focused on next year right now at this point. And I think this off season is absolutely huge. Dombrowski has to go sign a, a big name player in my opinion. And he has to make a couple low key additions in the bullpen or maybe a, a back end starter. Or maybe you think Kyle Gibson will kind of, keep that stabilized for next year this all seasons make or break uh in terms of what we're going to do going forward but none of that has to do with bryce harper none of like bryce harper is bryce harper did not stop us from developing and drafting well over the last four years and over the last 10 years in general so i think a lot of people in philadelphia just look for one thing to blame at all times. And it's easier to place your blame on one thing. The team ships that player out and then going into the next year, you can completely buy in and you have no doubts and everything is fixed because the cancer is gone. Everything's gone. But when in realistic, in realistic situations, there's nuance in every situation and nothing is ever going to be an all for one problem. Like Ben Simmons even, and I want to trade him as much as anyone at this point. It's the same thing. It's Gabe Kapler. It's, it's Doug Peterson. It's Carson Wentz. It's, we do it with everybody. We, we want to focus on one thing instead of saying, well, hold on, let's wait a minute. Why did we pay DD over these options? Why did we not go get Taiwan Walker for $6 million instead of getting Chase Anderson and Matt Moore? I think that there's actual decisions that you can point at that are like, these were bad decisions. And this yeah. was bad. This was an organizational failure. Instead of being like, Giving $330 million to Bryce Harper <laughs> is a massive mistake, and, and it's because we stink. And it's like, I, I think you can look at it a little bit more nuanced than that. I love it. I mean, I wish this team just I, – I wish they just took momentum and just grabbed it. I mean, that Monday walk-off win against uh, the Nationals, you just hope – Felt like would, something. It felt like – yeah, it felt like a turning point. And then there's – but, Mark, there's been like five turning points I know. this season. It's like, all right, here they go. Here go the boys. And you drop two or three to Pittsburgh. And it's like – so, well, Mark, where can people find you? Where can they read you? Where can they listen to you? You can find me at Mark Henry Jr. underscore, and you can follow me at Tough Cover Pod as well. Uh, I, the Tough Cover Pod has been inactive as of late, uh, but because I, I've been doing so much with the NBA draft, doing so much uh, with the new football podcast, 
Um, and now uh, we got Mark and Philly Mondays here on Everything's Fine. So I'll, I'll be getting tough I like cover. That. I didn't even I, think about that. I like that. <laughs> I'll be getting the tough cover pod back up and running, hopefully this week with some running back and receiver fantasy football breakdown. So keep your eye out on my Twitter and the tough cover podcast Twitter for that. This is hands down the worst time for gambling. Like right oh. before college football and NFL starts, and all we have is baseball. I, 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 are you betting Olympics? No, I, I'm, a, I'm an anti-Olympics guy. I don't like you the Olympics. Olymp- yeah, do you, I, I don't watch them either. I think they're terrible. I'm out on the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, my mom thinks I'm crazy. Uh, she, she's many all into it. I don't get it. Like, I'm not going to sit around and watch swimming. But I, I lost seven units while we, were sitting on the, while we were sitting on this call. The Houston Astros. I had no problems with the Houston Astros after they cheated and all that stuff. But now, dead to me. <laughs> Cheating is one thing. Losing me money, that's another. I saw you were big. You were hard on them. I remember you. Uh, you tweeted like two hours ago. Like, just put two more units on the on the Astros. What an idiot! What an idiot! <laughs>